Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Here we go again. Week two of Castle, Psalm 127. Uh, And then Genesis chapter two, we'll be going to very, very shortly. Castles is both a series that we're doing on the family. It's also a new curriculum, a discipleship opportunity. Small groups are gonna be gathering. I hope that you'll be a part of them because honestly, there's way too much to say than I can possibly say on Sunday morning. And so the Castles curriculum is where we're going to drill down even more this fall, and you'll get a chance to be a part of it. We've called this series and this family ministry Castles. I've always been intrigued by history. I enjoy medieval history. I enjoy castles. And one of the highlights of my life, really, a number of years ago, was getting to go to the UK and get to tour all the history and see so many castles. I actually got to be right here. I got to tour this castle. This is Sterling Castle, made famous by one of my direct ancestors, Braveheart. (laughs) William Wallace, freedom! You guys remember, right? You know all the lines of the movie. If you don't, it's a must-see, all right? And I'm not a direct descendant, by the way. No, that's only in my dreams. But it was Sterling Castle built actually a thousand years ago by King Alexander I of Scotland, made famous September the 11th, 1297. And that movie captured in some way that battle at Stirling Bridge as the Scots took back this very castle from the English. And I want you to know what I find amazing about castles. This is a thousand years old. You can go there today, and a thousand years from now, it will still be there. Why is that? Obviously, because it's built on a higher elevation. You have it made out of stone. It's uh, got walls of fortification. I want you to know that a castle was a place of protection, and in some way that ought to be a description of your home. Do you understand that every home is somebody's castle, and every castle is somebody's home? Now, if your home is under attack and our homes are under attack, there's an adversary, Jesus said, that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Would you rather be in this castle or this castle? (laughs) Because this, by the way, is a castle. It's very much a castle. You can see the architecture behind it, the artwork, the intricacies. But you understand, while Sterling Castle is a thousand years old, it'll be there a thousand years from now, this castle probably did not last to the end of the week, maybe not even the end of the day. Because most castles are built out of things that are very fragile, a foundation that will wash away. And Jesus taught this, we learned last time, in Matthew chapter 7, there's the wise builder and the foolish builder. The wise builder builds his life on the rock, and the foolish builder builds their life on the sand. And right now you're building a home, you're building a family made out of stone. It's a castle that will stand up to the test of time and the assault on the outside to protect that which is on the inside, or you're building right now a castle, a family on the wrong foundation that will one day wash away, you see it will decay. And that is why kind of our theme for this whole ministry in this series, Psalm 127 and verse one, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
What we learn here from this ancient wisdom is that God must be the builder of your home. God must be the author of your home. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. And when we talk about the house, we're really talking about the home. And that's what's at stake in this series. And we learned last time that that foundation must be the Lord Jesus Christ. The foundation for your life and your family must be the rock, which is the Lord Jesus. And Jesus taught the wise builder builds his life, his family, upon the rock. And when you look through scripture, the rock is always a symbol of the same thing. It's a symbol of the word of God and the son of God, the living word and the written word. When you have the right foundation, now you're ready to build. The most important part of any house What is it? Is it the part you can see or the part you cannot see? Yeah, we like looking at the part we can see, right? The intricacies, the aesthetics, the color of the carpet, but the simple reality is you can put a lot of energy in the part that people can see outwardly, but if you don't have a foundation, a strong foundation, that house is not going to stand. That's what Jesus was teaching. So a lot of you know, some of you may not know, that three weeks ago right now, Krista and I and our family were in Maui. And uh, we had saved for like two years to go on this, you know, once in a lifetime kind of vacation, could not have dreamed what was about to happen. So I'm convinced providentially, not accidentally, we were on that island when this horrible, horrible wildfire uh, broke out. And the amazing thing is we allowed our adult kids to put together kind of the itinerary. You know, we're still just the financiers. (laughs) We don't do the planning, we just pay for it, okay? That's how it goes in my house, my castle, okay? So uh, we had been across the island the day before, like 50 miles away. And the amazing thing is the one day out of the seven, we were going to be in Lahaina. That part of the island was Tuesday, that fateful Tuesday, three weeks ago this Tuesday. And uh, there had been a hurricane offshore somewhere 800 miles away, kicked up big winds, and a lot of power lines were down, and we kind of had a hard time getting to the beach that day where our kids wanted to go snorkel. And so uh, our daughter wants to come back early. We had two cars, and so our older kids are going to stay. They're going to snorkel. They're at the beach. They'll meet us back at the VRBO an hour or so later. So Chris and I and our daughter, we get back into Lahaina, and it is chaos. It is gridlock. And at the time, I think, well, this is just what we came through earlier in the day. The power lines are down. It's going to be slow going, but we'll eventually make it out of town. Well, what happens is the one road that leads out of town was shut down. Thousands of cars are doing this with nowhere to go. I describe it like being a, you know, cattle in a corral. Uh, All the roads are shut down. Nobody can get out of town. More and more cars are coming. And when I think this is a frustration and irritation, All of a sudden, I realized, wait a minute, this is a dangerous situation. The town starts filling with smoke, and that's when I realized this is is dangerous now. And actually, I went to um, a utility worker. They'd stopped the highway. They were blocking the highway. I'm like, hey, we have got to get to Kihei. We need to get, what do we do? She says, go back on the other side of the smoke and go back the other way. So that's what I do. And about that time, the smoke is filling the town. My wife begins to pray. And in that moment, I pull out my iPhone. I think, I'm living in a significant moment in time. I take a 14-second video. And I'm not going to tell the whole story because uh, the news outlets picked up on the social media post I made. And I woke up the next day to a Fox and Friends request for an interview. And some other uh, local and national news outlets picked up the story. But I want you to see the video that I took on that day.
The only time my wife has ever prayed, ending with, there's ashes on the windows. <laughs> Her eyes are closed. She's praying. She looks up. Ashes are on the windows. And uh, that prayer, I think, is what prompted me in that moment. I'd been told to go this way. I think the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 no. Don't go that way. Bad idea. I turn it around. And about the time I get back to where I'd come from, they open up the highway. Uh, we make a run for it. We get out of town. But by that time, it was too late. As you guys know, tragedy tragedy. Hundreds of people died. The entire town burnt down. Horrible tragedy. Now, I've been reading where 2,400 structures in Lahaina town burned to the ground, but as far as I can tell, only two structures in the whole town did not burn when everything else burned to the ground. Remarkably, there was one home, one house that did not burn when everything around it burnt to the ground. Now, you look first, you think, this is Photoshop. This is not AI. This is not fake news. This is a real house that survived the fire. You can see all the destruction all around it. Why did this one house survive the fire when all these other homes burnt to the ground? I'll tell you why. Because it was built to a different set of specs. Church, I'm telling you this today because our world is on fire. Homes are on fire. Marriages are on fire. Families are on fire. And the reason why is we have built to a different set of specs. The world has one way. God has a different way. And I'm praying this series is a defining moment for your life, for your family. Your decisions define your destination. And I'm not just meaning for your life, but your children's life and their children's life. A family tree spiritually that's being defined right now in the 21st century. So what happened? This was a 100-year-old home a few years ago. Somebody bought it, began to renovate it. But they did not renovate it like all these other homes have been renovated. See, they built it with a different set of specs. First of all, they put a metal roof on it. But experts have said, you can read this for yourself, the biggest reason this home did not burn when all the other homes burned was not simply the metal roof, and that was helpful. But experts have said the real reason, the biggest reason it did not burn is that when they renovated this house, they surrounded this house with five feet of rock on all sides. There was nothing flammable next to it. This was a home that was built in the rock, that was built on the rock. It is surrounded by the rock. When all the other homes burned down to the ground, this is a home that withstood a firestorm of destruction because it was a home that was built with the rock. It was built on the rock, surrounded by rock. I'm simply trying to tell you, you will never have a marriage on the rocks if you build your home upon the rock. And that rock is Christ. Now, I don't have time possibly to tell you everything I want to, so I'm going to be fast-forwarding and clicking through some things, too much content, which is normal for Pastor Phil, okay? So, this is a series. I'll try to pick up what I don't get to say today at another time. Just keep coming back because we're going to be doing this for a while. This is so important. We're not going to rush through it. But I want you to see today the framework. Once you have the foundation, it's time to start putting up the framework. All right, so we've talked about the foundation. The most important part of any home is the foundation. But once you have the foundation, you know anything, if, you, if you've ever built a house or just driven through a subdivision that is just being built, all of a sudden you start seeing the framework going up. Picture the studs, the two-by-fours, the framework. I want to talk today about the framework, not the foundation, but the framework. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to skip this, come back to this, skipping this, coming back to this. All right. All right. 
I want to give you the four walls of the framework in Genesis chapter 2. The framework of marriage. First of all, marriage is about a commission. Marriage is about a commission. Listen, I know a lot of us aren't married. A lot of us are single, wish we were married. A lot of us are married, wish we were single. But I want you to see today God's framework for marriage. You understand marriage is not the idea of culture. Marriage was not invented by government. Marriage was not the invention of human civilization. Do you understand that marriage was the idea of God? And so God gets to tell us what is the framework of marriage. It was his idea. It was his creation. And it's one of the institutions God gave human civilization for the good order, prosperity of society, the good order, prosperity, and peace of the family. And so I like to say for best results, let's consult the manufacturer, yes? Hey, the world's doing it one way. God says there's a different way. And while marriage is a secular institution, and that means our secular society can do anything they want with it, and they have and they will, you understand it's not simply a secular institution, it's first and foremost a sacred institution because it comes from God, yes? And so we're going to see what God says about the framework of the home, the framework of marriage, the fabric of the family. Now, we're going to get to parenting later and some of those child-rearing principles, but listen carefully. If you're married, you know the number one thing you can do for your kids is have a strong marriage. Gentlemen, if you're married and you have children, the number one thing you can do for your children is love their mother. Ladies, if you're married and you love your kids, and I know you do, the number one thing you do for your kids is love their father. Now, I realize not of us here are married. Some of us have been divorced. Some of us are blending, and we're trying to go to bonded, and some of us are co-parenting with the ex. That's a lot of us here, and we're going to speak into all of that eventually, hopefully. Our castle's curriculum speaks specifically into these things that aren't ideal, but sometimes it's not ideal. It's just real, yes? But today, I want to give you the ideal. I realize it isn't for everybody real, But I want to give you the ideal. It is something God wants you to understand. Maybe you're divorced, someday you'll be remarried. Maybe you're single, someday you'll be married. We need to know the framework. Because I'll promise when you build according to a different set of specs, your home, your marriage will stand up to the firestorm of destruction. And while other homes are on fire, yours can stand the test of time. Genesis chapter 2, we see four things about the framework of the home, the framework of marriage. Number one is this, marriage is about a commission. It's about a commission. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says this, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper comparable to him. Now, Adam is all alone. Adam being the first man. He does not yet have a wife. He doesn't have a bride. And God looks at him as a bachelor. He's all alone. Says it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. Ladies, if you have ever thought to yourself, My goodness, my husband needs a lot of help. He does. He does. That's why God gave him you. He needs a lot of help. My wife is my helper in so many ways. I cannot begin to imagine. Uh, In many, many ways. For one thing, she's my finder. It's amazing. Seriously, when I lose something, keys, wallet, phone, I'll look all over the house. I'll finally say, honey, will you please help me? And she will go to the last place I just was. And there it is. 
I don't know how she does it. It's like a miracle, because I promise I was there, it wasn't there. It was not there. And she goes, and now it is. I don't know how she does it. It's amazing. Gentlemen, our wives are just better at some things than we are. They just are, all right? That's why God gave them to us, because we're better together, all right? Uh, here's the reality. It's not good that man should be alone. Every single married man, whatever campus, whatever church house right here in Lee Summit, if you are thankful that God said it's not good that man should be alone, I want you to say right now how thankful you are. Yes, yes, you're catching on. Happy wife, happy life. The men that are married and wise just gave a big hallelujah shout, right? The men that are going to have a long Sunday afternoon didn't say anything. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) It's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helpmeet, a helper, a bride, a wife for him. Now, a lot of people think, and I've heard this taught so poorly, terribly, like pastors and priests at, at at wedding ceremonies. This is normally the spin on this verse. Well, poor Adam, he was lonely. He needed somebody to complete him because he was incomplete. No, that's terrible theology. Let's be very clear. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't get any more complete than that. He did not need a spouse to complete him. Not only that, we learn in Genesis 3, he walked and talked with God. He got to hang out with God. He was not lonely. That is not why God said it's not good that man should be alone. I'm telling you that because 40% of us right here under the sound of my voice statistically are single. And we have bought the lie of modern American society. You know, it's uh, I'm single and I'm incomplete until I'm married. I need to find a spouse to complete me. And it's a lie. You need to know, as a child of God, you put your faith in the Son of God. You've been born again now. As a child of God, you're complete already. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't want to get married. It's okay if you want to get married. But if you get married hoping somebody will complete you, instead of completing, you'll end up competing. And it becomes a parasitic relationship. Because we bought this lie of pop you know, society and pop culture and pop music and Hollywood. It's uh, I didn't, I never saw the movie. It's been out years and years ago, but it was a, a love romance, Tom Cruise. And I just remember seeing one promo, one ad, right? It was Jerry Maguire was the movie. And I remember just seeing this one scene as he looks into the eyes of his romantic other, you complete me. And all the little hearts go pitter-patter. Oh, it's a lie. It's a lie. That's why there's so much disappointment and frustration and dissatisfaction. Faulty expectations leads to dissatisfaction. No human being can do for you what only God can do for you. Don't place that on your spouse. That's why you have a Savior. Jesus has completed you because when you look to another mortal to complete you and do for you what only God can do for you, they will never meet the expectation. I want you to see why God really said it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. It wasn't because Adam needed someone to complete him. He needed someone to help him fulfill a commission. 
You see, God gave Adam a commission, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. All right, now listen very carefully. That commission to be fruitful was going to be hard for Adam as a bachelor. I had this talk with my kids when they were like the fifth grade. Okay, they knew storks are not the reason babies are born. All right, it's just hard for a man who's alone, who stays alone, who remains alone, to be fruitful, yes? He needs somebody to help him fulfill that commission. Now understand about this commission, this was not simply God telling Adam, go make a lot of babies and propagate the human race. Yes, that was important, that was part of it. But there's so much more to it than that going on here. I'm telling you that because there are some couples here, you long to have a family, and you're going through fertility issues, and I'm praying for some of you, and I think before this series is over, we ought to pray for all of you. You naturally want to have a baby, but fertility issues are still something a lot of couples struggle with in the 21st century, even the age of modern medical technology, and you need to know something, even if you never have any physical offspring, you can still fulfill your commission of marriage because this commission isn't just physical, it's spiritual. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. He was not to reproduce sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. He was to reproduce sons of God, children of God. Before he sinned and lost that perfect image of God, he was going to take his seed in the intimacy of that relationship with his bride Eve and reproduce little image bearers children of God, and that is still the commission as a born-again child of God, that our marriages will do more than simply father a, a physical family tree, but rather in some way, our marriage will be a legacy spiritually of a family tree spiritually that'll echo and ring for all of eternity. See, the commission of a Christian marriage is to reproduce God's image. Meaning some kind of way, everything that God does in the spiritual realm, he teaches us through the physical realm. You understand, God loves teaching through word pictures. And anything that God wants to teach us about what we cannot see, he gives us a picture of something we can see. So marriage is a physical picture that people can see to teach the world that is dark and dying about something they cannot see that God wants them to see. And your marriage in some way bears the image of God, the Son of God, the Bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way he loves and cares for you and me, his Eve, the Bride of Christ. Bearing the image, that's the commission. Now, there's a second thing in the framework, a second wall as we put up the framework of family, the framework of marriage. Uh, marriage is about a commission. It's about a crucifixion. The image begins to take on shape. It begins to take on form. Now, we would all agree that God being God could do anything he wanted to as it relates to giving Adam a bride that we know as Eve. He didn't have to take Adam's rib from his side and make a woman. I mean, God could have done it with nothing but a thought, yes? He could have done it with a snap of the fingers, woman. But he didn't because he's drawn a picture, a physical image of his spiritual image. 
Look what happens next. Man is all alone. Verse 19, and out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, what is going on? You've taken your little ones through a walk through the zoo. God's taking his son. He's only got one. And they're going for a walk in the zoo. And God is giving Adam the chance to name all the animals in his creation. Now understand what's going on here. The reason God is doing it, first of all, is to overcome a false world view that our children are currently being taught. The worldview that says we, as human beings, are merely another animal species, not unlike any other animal species, and we're really all the same, and we're all on the same plane, and we're not more important than any other, and all we are is a highly evolved animal species, and we're just the result of natural selection and Darwinian evolution, and we're just a bag of bone and hormones, and that's what our kids are being taught. Not true. What God is showing Adam is you're not like all the others. You're not on the same plane with all the other animal kingdom and God's creation. You're unique. And you understand as human beings, we are unique. And we have a living soul, we have a living spirit. We have a moral conscience before a moral creator. We are unique. When an African lion kills his own offspring on the African savanna to get the lioness in his pride to come back into heat, he has no moral conscience about that whatsoever. Now a world without God becomes more and more the law of the jungle. You can start to see what is going on with our society where there's no moral conscience. Right, but there's more going on. As he lets him name the animals, what's he doing? He's exercising dominion. God had given Adam dominion over the earth, Genesis chapter one. And in naming them, he's giving dominion to him. And so he goes and shows this animal. And this animal, you have Adam naming, you know, octopus and platypus and snuffleupagus. Some of you are going, does he know? <laughs> I know, I know, okay? I'm just having some fun, all right? At the end of the day, he realizes <laughs> there's nobody here for me. And one can only imagine what this was like because there's a lot of animals. I mean, you know, it's, it's hippopotamus and it's orangutan and platypus. And man, by the end of the day, it's like cat, <laughs> dog. <laughs> but one thing Adam knows now, there's nobody here for me. They can all be fruitful. I can't be fruitful. So look what happens next. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, what's going on? There is an amazing picture emerging. Remember, God could have created Eve any way he wanted to, but he chose to do it this way specifically. He goes into a deep sleep. Now, church, listen, when you study scripture, you know that sleep in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is a metaphor. It's a euphemism of death. I also know this word in the Hebrew translated as deep sleep doesn't mean Adam needed to take a nap. He wasn't just tired, need to go lay down because of his long walk through the zoo. No, 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 no. Deep sleep is a supernatural sleep. I do not know this for sure. 
I do know for sure that this Hebrew word, deep sleep, is sometimes translated as death. Because at a minimum, what God is doing here is picturing a death. I think it's possible maybe on this day that God brought a bride from Adam's side. Adam had actually died because this is a picture of another Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45 calls Jesus the last Adam or the second Adam because God wants you to connect the dots and run the line from Jesus, the last Adam, back to the first Adam. And what I know about Jesus, the last Adam, is there was a day that he he hang up on a cross and he would die to give life to his bride and a Roman spear would pierce his side and from his side would pour that life-giving blood that would give life to his bride. And in the same way, from his side, that blood would pour forth to give life to his bride. The first Adam now has died to give life to his bride. God reaches into his side. I want you to see the picture. This is amazing. Only God can do this stuff. Adam died giving life to his bride like Jesus would die to give life to his bride. You see, marriage is a picture of another marriage spiritually, Jesus being the bridegroom, Ephesians chapter five, and you and I, the church, being the bride. And that is why marriage is about a commission, but it's also about a crucifixion. And so don't misunderstand the implication in a Christian marriage, the moment you said, I do, you said, I die too. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You see, the simple reality is we think marriage is about our self-satisfaction. But the truth is, it's not simply about our self-satisfaction. It is about our sanctification. That simply means the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And it's so important we understand this because we live at a time where marriage is about personal gratification. And only when we start to see it's also about God's glory glorification, not simply our gratification, can we start to live out the commission and it demands a crucifixion. You stood at an altar sometime in your life if you're married and you took vows before God for richer or poorer, for better or worse. You know why you took that vow? Because there are days it's going to be worse than better. And you're going to have to take the nails. You're going to have to bear the cross, the agony of the crucifixion. Sometimes marriage is going to be a thing of suffering. Whatever you do, do not blink right now if you're sitting next to your spouse. Don't even breathe. Do not elbow them. Oh, no. That'll make for a really bad Sunday. Here's the point. You thought you married the only sinless person since Jesus. It doesn't take long after the honeymoon, once the honey is licked out after the honeymoon, to know you didn't marry the only sinless person outside of Jesus. They're going to need a lot of grace. They're going to need a lot of forgiveness. They're going to have bad moments. They're going to have bad days. But do you understand what we're learning? Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the very same way, Jesus didn't wait to love us until we were lovable. He loved us when we were unlovable. And because of the transforming love of God, it actually changes us so that we become more lovable when we're, we're formerly unlovable. Gentlemen, if you will love your wives in those moments, they are unlovely. You will make them more lovely. Now, ladies, I know you're amazing. Really, I, I know. Somebody right now needs to turn to their wife and say, honey, you're amazing. Really. 
do you want to have a happy Sunday or not? <laughs> Some of you gentlemen, you're slow learners. If you hesitate, it doesn't count. She walks out of the closet, ready for a big date night, wearing a new dress. She says, honey, how do I look? And you say? If you hesitate, it doesn't count. And you say? Amazing. Yes. Picking up on it now. Here's the point, ladies. You're amazing, but you have bad days. I know you do. You're just human. There are days you don't act lovable, but if your husband will love you when you're not lovable, it has the power to make you more lovable. Check this out, ladies. Your husband sometimes is not going to act respectable. Ephesians 5.33, husbands, see that you love your wives as your own bodies, and wives, see that you respect your husband. The language of men is respect. I know he does not always act respectable, but if you will respect him, even when he's not respectable, it has the power to transform him and make him more respectable. But it demands a cross. It demands a crucifixion. There are going to be times you're going to have to take the nails. This is what this looks like. This is what it means. It's about you becoming more and more like Christ. Imagine for a moment, gentlemen, even if you could marry the perfect woman, there's no such thing, it would not give you any opportunity to become more Christ-like if it were always easy. I mean, think about it. You marry, she is gorgeous and she is godly. She is a stay-at-home mom with a six-figure income. <laughs> Does it get any better? She loves watching football all Saturday afternoons. It's all she wants to do between making trips to the fridge to grab you a new cold drink, and she loves that stuff. She loves picking up your laundry off the bathroom floor. It's like a hobby. She had, can you drop some more laundry, please? <laughs> Isn't she amazing? I mean, she loves it when you bag big bucks, catch big bass, and she loves to clean them for you, too. <laughs> Honey, I got this, right? Imagine if that were, you would never get a chance to become more like Jesus if it were always easy. This is Mary. It's about a crucifixion. Because it's a picture, it's an image of Christ, it's an image of the bride of Christ, you and I. Now listen carefully, marriage then is about a covenant, it's about a commission, it's about a crucifixion, it's about a covenant. And this is so important because the average American wedding, they think it's a contractual agreement. Terms and conditions, con contracts can be broken, but a covenant can't be broken. It's binding, it's unbreakable. Now picture the scene. Adam wakes up from the supernatural sleep. I think maybe it's actually a resurrection. Don't know. Don't email me this week, oh Phil. I don't, I'm speculating, okay? Either way, it's a picture of the resurrection. He opens his eyes for the first time. He lays his eyes on the most beautiful thing he has ever seen. It had to be mind-blowing. Because up to this point, all he has seen is orangutans and aardvarks and <laughs> elephants it's the most amazing thing, his wife, and she's naked. It's what it says. It's in the Bible. Now one would think right away, he would get a little romantic. He doesn't get romantic, he'd get theological though. You think right away, I mean, he'd think of his best line ever, right? Like, wow, hey, uh, is your father a thief? Well, no, what do you mean? because he stole the stars from the skies and put them in your eyes. <laughs> Guys, try that today. <laughs> Better yet, don't, okay? Just don't, forget that part. Do not say that to your wife. Do not say that to your wife. 
No, you think he'd get a little romantic, but he doesn't. He gets theological. I want you to think, what did you think the first time you saw her? I remember this day, the first time I saw my wife, had no idea she'd be my wife, when I laid eyes for the first time ever on Christa, uh, on Christa 1985 BC, before Christa. <laughs> 16 years of age, junior in high school, I see her walking down the hall with her boyfriend, holding hands. Didn't care, he was not a problem, I married her. <laughs> now, I knew about her ahead of time, you know why? I had a friend who was a girl, and as we're going back to school that junior year, my friend, who happened to be a girl, was telling me about this new girl. And I could tell whoever this new girl was must be amazing because this girl was clearly threatened, all right? I could tell. She was a little bit jealous. She tells me there's this new girl. She's blonde, and she has the most beautiful green eyes, but they can't be real. They're so green. They, they have to be those colored contacts. They weren't. They were real. And when I saw her, I knew this has to be her, this new girl. I literally think to myself, I remember this day standing there, mouth open. I said, wow. Whoa. 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 Wow. Man. Whoa, man. You understand that's exactly, I'm not making this up, that's exactly what Adam thought when he saw his wife for the first time. Verse 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called man. She shall be called whoa, man. Wow, man. This is my woman. And he gets really theological here. Did you know this is the verse that Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, the greatest dissertation ever on marriage? He would quote this very verse to describe our relationship to Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ, and we are the bride of Christ. And Paul would say in Ephesians 5 that we are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, that we are in him and he is in us. And all of this is now a picture. It's an image that God is painting through marriage. Adam, his first words, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken from me. She was taken out of me. Like we're one flesh. Look at what it says in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleaved to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This word joined, it is the Hebrew word. It means bonding, gluing in a way that cannot be broken, cannot be separated. Listen, I know that some of us here are divorced and I want you to understand something. As a child of God, you are not damaged good in the eyes of God because you've been divorced. You're not a second class Christian in the eyes of God. If you have been divorced, you need to know God has a plan for your future. He has a plan for your life. I want you to know though, in the mind of God, ideally, I know it's not real, but ideal, you are never ever separated once God has joined you together. Because it's a covenant. It's a picture of being one flesh with another. In a way that can never ever change. You see, what we're learning is marriage is about a covenant, not a contract, but a covenant that is binding, unbreakable, it's irrevocable. See, a contract is built on terms and conditions. Most couples go into marriage thinking contractually, you do your part, I'll do my part. You don't do this, this, and this, I'm out. 
Contracts null and void. No, wait a minute. This is not how God looks at you. Even when you don't do your part, he still does his. Even when you try to run from him, he still pursues you. Even when you don't love him, he still loves you. You see, it's not built on a contractual agreement. It is a covenant relationship that is being pictured here in marriage until death do we part. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He says, I no longer see the two of you. Now I see only one of you. The moment you said, I do, God says, you are no longer two. I now see one of you, one flesh with another. Ephesians 5, you are one person that God sees with the man being the head and the woman being the body. Let me ask you, what's more important to my health and vitality, my head or my body? They're both equally important, aren't they? See, we need, we need to put to rest the historic male chauvinism and the new modern feminism where somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. No, the reality is both of you are indispensable. What would happen if my head was separated from my body today? I'd be dead. My head and my body would both die. It would be a bad day for Pastor Phil. So which is more important? Which is more superior in this relationship, the man or the woman, the body or the head? Everybody say yes. Both. In the mind of God, it's crucial. The key is getting the head and the body aligned. I'm going to talk about this next week. We're going to end the battle of the sexes next week. (laughs) Because most homes are a war zone. That castle is meant to keep the battles on the outside. What happens when the battle makes it to the inside? And we're going to end the war zone by redefining who is sitting on the throne of the home. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate October the 5th, 1991. You can see, she just couldn't resist me. Irresistible. I didn't know anything about being a husband. I really didn't. I knew I loved this woman. I wanted to be a good husband. I didn't know what I didn't know. I had a lot to learn. A lot of what I'm sharing with you, I've learned over 32 years of trial and error. I have a story, year 14. (laughs) Someday I'll share it. I have in the past, I might do it again. Radical transformation. I learned what it meant to bear the crucifixion. Did not know till year 14 changed everything. What I did know as a young man though is that this is until death do we part. It's the one thing I had going for me going into marriage. Until death do we part. And it was that vow, that understanding of God's desire for marriage that kept Krista and I in it when otherwise we might have taken the back door and left it. It's a covenant. A Christian marriage is a picture of the covenant relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Guess what he says? Here's this covenant vow, Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when you forsake him, he's not gonna forsake you. Even if you try to leave him, he's coming after you. That's a covenant. And that's what God desires for our marriages. You're on your second marriage. Maybe you're on your third marriage. This is an opportunity to redefine the future. If you haven't built with the framework of God in the past, it's a new day. God is a God of new beginnings. You get to redefine the destination by redeeming 
what is and building on a strong foundation and the framework that marriage is a commission, it's a crucifixion, it's a covenant, and it's about a companion. Now listen, we've been really theological, now we're gonna get really practical. Look at what it says, end of the chapter, verse 25. They were both naked. The man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. This is before the fall, before there was sin. When sin enters in, they're running from each other, hiding from each other, hiding from God, playing the blame game. That's the D and now because of sin on every marriage since. But before the fall, they were naked and not ashamed. Not just physically. They were naked in every way with each other. What is intimacy? You were made for intimacy. Intimacy means into me see. Naked. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, yes, physically. Where there is such relational security that you can be honest with each other. The hitches, the hang-ups, the faults, the flaws. You know about all of them. And they know about all of mine. Yet there is such love unconditionally, such relational safety. I don't have to hide from them. Might have to hide from everybody else. I don't have to hide from my spouse. They love me perfectly. Unconditionally, the love of God upon you. God loves you perfectly, knowing everything about you, your hitches, your hangups, your faults and failures. God says, I want you to take that now into your marriage, the joy of marriage, to be naked and not ashamed, known intimately and loved unconditionally. But unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Guys, we, as the church, as Christians, have been lied to by our modern American society, by all the secular psychobabble, by this talk show host, by this podcaster, by this influencer, all this empty wisdom floating around everywhere. Will we come back to what God says? Will we come back to build according to God's framework? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Listen, two structures made it through the fire. I told you about the house. When all the other houses burned down, there was one house that made it through the fire. They built with a different set of specs. There's one other structure of the 2400 that burned down. The second structure that made it through the fire is this right here. The church on Front Street in historic downtown district of Lahaina. When everything else burned down, you can see the destruction next to it blackened and darkened, destroyed. A church stands, how, why? Nobody knows why. It's a mystery. You can call that coincidental or you can call that providential. I'll let you decide. What I know is when your house becomes God's house, your home can survive a firestorm of destruction. Make your house God's house and it will change everything. I want you to stand with me right now. Wherever you are in the world, church houses, other campuses in our city, right here in Lee Summit, I want you to stand. I wanna lead you through a declaration, a prayer. And you don't have to do this. You can stand and say nothing if you're not ready. Because I want you to take this seriously. I want to pray right now with you. From our heart to the heart of heaven. 
and make a declaration that's going to redefine a destination, whether you're single or married, kids, no kids. It all begins today, except the Lord builds a house. They labor in vain. Who build it? Would you pray with me? Bow right now, wherever you are in the world. Say this with me. Jesus, I confess that you are the rock on which I will build my life and you will be my builder of my castle. And Jesus, I give you all rights to my life. I wanna build my life according to your framework while the world is on fire and other homes are on fire Families are on fire. God, I want a castle that can stand up to the firestorm of destruction. And you will be my foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him the glory, would you, today? Praise him. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.